welcome to you, Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Criminal pleads insanity and is admitted to a mental institution where he rebels against the oppressive nurse and rallies up the scared patients. Well, we've arrived. <laughs> we've arrived. We've arrived at... The big one. <sighs> okay, look. We're not going to say why this movie is such a big deal. But if you know anything about Oscar's history, you know. You know. You, you, just know. you know. We're not going to pretend. Like, we're not going to pretend. Okay. Like, let's just, we're just, we, it's a big deal. This one's, this is the big one. We know it. Let's, we're like, duh. <laughs> duh. Holy fuck. This was almost 50 years ago. Jesus, I feel old now. <laughs> Anyways. This is considered one of the seminal films in American movies. It just is. And it has been for a long time. Okay. Partially because of the accolades it got. Sure. And partially just because over time it's endured. I understand that. I mean, after we watched it, I said, well, that's definitely the best film that we watched for this year. I mean, I'm, I'm hands down. It still holds up really well. It does. It, it is, does. It is not an easy movie to watch at all. No. And, and the things, some of the things that are extra uncomfortable are just you know the things that are just were culturally bad then are just extra culturally cringy now but it's interesting in that i i also don't feel like the movie tries to play it off as that's okay it doesn't judge its characters necessarily no and most of it comes from our truly unlikable lead character anyways yep so like there's nothing likable about that guy there really is. And McMurphy is a horrible dude. He is one of the most flawed heroes. He really has no redeeming qualities. And yet, he's still better than the villain. True. I mean, that's that's fair. But uh, we'll get into it. But um <laughs> It's a good argument. It is a good argument. Um it's it's well done. I remember seeing this. I don't remember when it was it was during that glut of years when I just was trying I was going to watch the important movies. But I remember this one standing above them, like flooring me after sure. I saw it because it was such an emotional roller coaster. Like this movie does not. This movie goes for your emotions just as much as it goes for like your your sort of mind and visuals and anything. It really just tries to go for your heart in a really hardcore way. Well, I think it's telling a good story. Yes, and that. I think one of the things that's been missing from a lot of our other films this year is that the story is really shaky. Oh, man, is it ever. <laughs> I mean, and that's really been our problem across the board. And if they have a good story, they're doing a shitty job of telling they're it. They're doing a really bad job with it. And this one, uh, th there are some things you could have tightened up, sure, but your story's good. The elevator pitch of your story is good. And then your execution of that story is also good. Not to mention, I have read the book. I feel like this does a better job getting across the mm -hmm. point of that story. So I've never read the book and I hadn't seen this movie until today. So that's me. But I did the play in high school. Yeah. So I will say this. I hated the play in high school. <laughs> now, was that because of the play? I did hate the play. I also I'm just going to say this. If there happens to be anybody I did the play with in high school, sorry, uh, y'all were all assholes during the show. <laughs> like the cast, y'all were all jackasses and y'all know it. 
y'all know you were jackasses. Let's not pretend you weren't jackasses. <laughs> just, just, a, just a fact. I will say the girl who played Nurse Ratchet, one of the sweetest girls ever. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so, there was that. So I don't fully remember all the plot points. The only thing I really, truly remember is I knew the thing about Chief. Uh huh. And I knew that a water fountain was going to get thrown through a window. Yeah. Because that was a big fucking deal for us, technically, theater-wise, because we made that happen. It's a big fucking deal for the show. (laughs) Well, and then there was a party. There was going to be some partying. But all the other story points, don't remember them, don't have any idea. So, like, when we're watching this movie, it's like, oh, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. And then it happened. I'm totally guessing because I'd never seen the movie. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's a lot of this detail with the production and the writing of it. Mm-hmm. But I think that this movie, we, this has happened a lot in the 70s where they're really looking at trying to capture the essence of the moment. But this movie, above all of them, actually figured out how to do that. Okay. And they have a very solid base to work from. Mm-hmm. But maybe it was by pure luck, but they managed to actually capture the real moment, the real magic. That's not necessarily written into the script of, and the story of the movie. And that, I think, is what adds the extra bit of flavor to this movie that really makes it soar. Well, I that has to also be on the backs of the strength of the story itself. Exactly. And it always that's why we always tend to start with the writing and say, it's like, if that is solid, uh-huh. everything else... Even if your writing is amazing and your story is amazing, but you have a shitty director and shitty acting, you can still have a good movie. Yeah. We've seen it happen. <laughs> like, it, you can still have a pretty good movie, but no amount of great direction and great acting can save shitty writing. Yep. We just, we just know that to be true. <laughs> We've done the work. So anyway, generally, we are positive about this film. We are film. positive about this film. Now let's uh, dig in a little deeper. Okay. The budget for this film was $3 million. Oh, okay. That's low. Low. It grossed $109 million. That is high. (laughs) (laughs) It made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It was a huge success. I can guarantee you that's another reason why it got such a claim. I mean, part of it is this movie resonated both with audience and with critics. Sure. It's one of those very rare pieces. Sure. And I get that. It it's a movie that has such high caliber acting and and skill in what's being done on screen, but also just tells a story that anybody could watch and resonate with. Mm-hmm. And those are hard to find. Yeah. So it was co-produced by Saul Zantz, kind of well known in film producing circles. Okay. And Michael Douglas. Oh, okay. Before Michael Douglas had really been in a lot of things. Okay. So now we get into the backstory of this. We won't talk about Ken Kesey's novel yet. We'll get there when we get to writing. But Ken Kesey writes the novel. Mm -hmm. And then the play based off of that novel has its first opening in 1963. Okay. And Kirk Douglas has the starring role as McMurphy. Oh, okay. In that production, Gene Wilder played Billy Bibbitt. Oh, wow. In 1963, so this is like young Gene Wilder. Yeah, that is that. Yeah, wow. 
and the run of the play um as far as as far as i could tell it it got okay reviews but it didn't last very long Mm -hmm. it kind of came featured for a minute and left but kirk douglas held on to the film rights he wanted to star in the film okay however it wasn't enough of a success for it ever to get any traction and so kirk finally talked to his son Mm-hmm. When he grew too old to play the role and said, what the hell, you take it. I've n- I can't make any money off of this project. Okay. So Michael wanted to make the movie and he wanted to take the starring role. Okay. But he didn't have enough clout for that, <laughs> nor did he have enough presence. Okay. However, in the end, this movie was so profitable, it outgrossed and outprofited anything else Kirk Douglas ever did in his career. Wow. Like this this movie, I'm pretty certain set up the Douglases. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. And it probably launched Michael's career. It probably gave him the base to where he could produce a couple more things, and then he was able to, I believe, produce the China Syndrome, where he had one of his first big starring roles. Hmm. So this is like a big deal for Michael Douglas. Oh yeah. I mean, with with that type of return, that's the type of money where, as an actor, you can then fund the film that becomes your starring vehicle. And you're that young, and you produced one of the most acclaimed movies in movie history. Yeah. Like, you're going to make some huge headway based off of that. Yeah. A lot of studios were scared off by the length of time of making the film, the thought that they would have to film for an extended period of time to do it. Mm -hmm. And Kirk Douglas had met our director, Milos Forman, Mm -hmm. while Milos was still living in Prague. Okay. He is a Czech director, and Kirk Douglas went overseas on a trip with the State Department to do sort of a cultural exchange with a communist country. So Kirk wanted to send the book to Milos Forman. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's very likely that the book was censored mm. by the state government. Okay. Foreman thought Kirk Douglas had slighted him. Oh. Kirk Douglas thought Foreman was rude and hadn't responded to him sending the book. And they had a tiff about this for a while until somebody finally figured out that the authorities had been the reason why it never got to him. That's hilarious. And in one story of a studio trying to make demands too big for the movie... They were only distribute and finance if the ending was rewritten so that McMurphy would live. Mm. Fortunately, Saul Zantz literally just walked out the door at that. That's good. They knew they were going to keep the story intact. That's good. And you have to, my God. Yeah, like the impact of the story is gone if McMurphy lives. The ending is so tragic <laughs> and yet beautiful. <laughs> it's... It's definitely of its time for sure. Yeah, it's... Here's the thing. The ending of McMurphy for me mm-hmm. is not the big rousing amazing part. The amazing part is Chief finally deciding he's going to go. Chief Chief being ready to go. That's the amazing cathartic moment. Agreed. I guess for me, it's... I don't... It's not so much that I feel McMurphy is tragic. His, his ending is tragic because there's a part of it that is, but it's also like... It's just so earned. Yeah. What happens to him, this journey, is just like, well, this is earned. And it's like, I mean, it's not okay because, like, it's just not. But it's like the cynic in me is like, "Eh, you did this to yourself. (laughs) 
that's that's the part in it where I'm just like, yeah. Well, that's, I don't know, man. Like, because there's also a level at which this movie is definitely trying to say, and the novel was very explicitly trying to say mm-hmm. that the institutions around us are attempting to break us down. Oh, well, that's 100 percent true. And that's really the whole basis behind the story. McMurphy is trying desperately to fight against that. And in the end, he can never cut through. But he's also a horrible person. <laughs> yeah, well. And the and, and the saving grace of McMurphy is not anything he does so much as the impact that he makes on the men around him. Mm-hmm. That's the big deal. <laughs> Take the ball. Now. Jump up and put her in the basket, Chief! Huh? Jump up and put her in the basket! Not you, Bancini. Raise up, Bancini. Where are you going? Where are you Fast break! Defense! Get back! Back! Yeah! Come on, Bancini. Where the fuck you going at? General, get this man around here. That's it. Back. Over the Chief. Fast break! Fast break! Hit me, Chief! Hit me, baby! Put it in the basket, Chief! Put it in the basket! Douglas scouted locations and chose the Oregon State Hospital for filming because its superintendent, Dr. Dean R. Brooks, offered unlimited access to the hospital. Mm-hmm. They only had to spend $250 a day despite completely trashing places in the hospital for those mm. scenes. I mean, I, I think they paid for that stuff, but like they had full access. They were really doing that in the hospital. And Dean R. Brooks plays Dr. Spivey in the film. Oh, okay. So he is the actual doctor. As we get into it, it, it's a little concerning. But from what I can tell, this actually was like a really interesting experiment in working with the patients. I don't think it's as icky as it seems on the surface. Because I think there was a genuine working relationship with everybody in the hospital. I hope so. It's just there's inherently a exploitive nature. Yeah. And do these people know what they were being asked to do? And I don't I don't trust the filmmakers to be like, yeah, they totally understood. And and for the hospital to agree to this is just I mean, HIPAA violation all over the goddamn place. It's 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 not good well, and it shouldn't have been done. We'll talk about it though, because I think there was there was some of that consent involved. I'm not okay with it. I understand. <laughs> I definitely understand. I'm I'm not okay with filming people in treatment. Very fair. Mm-hmm. And you would never be able to do this today. Ever. No. no not even no. a little bit. No. <laughs> <laughs> so that gets us to our writing. Okay. And we will start by mentioning the man who wrote the novel. Ken Kesey. Now, Ken Kesey is a professional raconteur is probably the best term you could use for him. He was a novelist and writer as part of the Beat Group, Beat Generation, who infamously participated in the LSD testing in the early 60s and drove cross country in his bus called Further, which Neil Cassidy of the Beats drove and all these hippies and people hung out on and it's a whole wild journey. Tom Wolfe wrote about him for the book The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. He is a wild figure. But the novel was based on his experiences working at the VA hospital in Menlo Park in the psychiatric ward. 
And through those experiences, he wrote the novel and the story that this is based on. Okay. Then the play was written by Dale Wasserman, who also wrote Man of La Mancha. Mm. And then we have our screenplay writers. We have Lawrence Haubin, who this is his only writing credit ever. And Bo Goldman, this is his first major screenplay. After this, he would write The Rose, Melvin and Howard, Shoot the Moon, Swing Shift, The Flamingo Kid, Scent of a Woman, and Meet Joe Black. Oh, okay. So what do we think of the writing? It's pretty good. And again, I, I really like the story. <sighs> Some of the dialogue could be a little better. It's a very loose movie. Um, yeah, I'm, there's definitely improv going on which, here. Which there are scenes where that makes total sense, and I that does not bother me. But there's there's some places where I feel like there's just a tone that's not quite right. I think the writing's good. It's there's some places where I, I the dialogue is not quite great. I don't think that's the writers. I think the writers set up with a very very sound framework here. When we talk about our director and the way he chose to film this movie, I think that's where some of that disjointed feeling comes from. Mm -hmm. The writers, however, put together such a solid story. Like as much as there are those moments where you feel like, I don't get where we're going. This doesn't feel like it matches with the rest of it. At no point did I feel like this movie dragged. This is a two hour movie. This is like a solid length movie. And yet I never felt drugged down by it at all. Mm-hmm. especially for a movie that consists mostly of people in rooms talking to each other. Well, I mean, because they're very captivating people. Exactly. And they made them, I mean, the cast is phenomenal. There's, oh my gosh. Just, I mean, and they gave them very distinct personalities and they let them run with it. And they did. So that's, well, and I, I the other part of it is that you can tell that they know what their objective in their scene is. So Nurse Ratchet knows what her job is, and her job is to sit there and watch them do this. Regardless of whatever they do, her job is to be steel-faced and not let them rattle her, ever. ever. That's her job. That is her fucking job. She has to keep them Ex- underfoot the entire time. She she does not react to outbursts. She does not react to outbursts. Nope. She, she is unfazed by outbursts at all. Up until the moment where it is impossible not to do so. Correct. Which is fair. So, and that's interesting. And, you know, and then it's McMurphy is trying to get everyone's number. The problem is he's around people whose number is not consistent. Nope. And that he does not understand. Him and Harding, the whole movie, are so fascinating. Because Harding Harding as a character is, at once, both a big talker but then when the chips fall, he is going to run back to the corner. Well, there's that. But then when he gives his big reveal, I'm self-admitted. Yeah. I can leave whenever I want. Wait a minute. I didn't know anything about uh, how much. Wait a minute. Now, listen. Now, look. I'm, I'm voluntary here. See, I'm not committed. I don't have to stay here. I mean, I can go home anytime I want. You can go home anytime you want. That's it. You're bullshitting me. No. He's bullshitting me, right? No, Randall. He's telling you the truth. As a matter of fact, there are very few men here who are committed. There's Mr. Bromden, Mr. Tabor, some of the chronics, and you. But when Murphy hears that, it's like, 
what the fuck are you telling me? Why would you ever volunteer to be here? Like, and then not just him, but all these guys. Well, and, no, and he- some some of them get it. Some of them are kind of like, okay. Like they, they get the need to be there. Billy Babbitt needs to be there. Yes. He understands he needs to be there. Chief understands I need to be here. There are several of them that understand the need to be there, whether they chose to be there or not. It wouldn't surprise me if in writing this story, there are several that the author decided, you decided to be here, you decided to be here, but I'm never revealing that. But that's my, as an author, I am making that your motivation for how and what you do. But when he says that, it just blows it so open. It totally changes how you view, have viewed him for the whole movie. And it comes, it comes at exactly the right moment in mm-hmm. the movie too. Yeah. It, it totally flips the, the movie on its head right when we change the act. <laughs> but at the same time, what you, everyone forgets is McMurphy chose this. Yes. That's the other part is McMurphy chose this. That scene with him and Washington in the pool. Oh. <laughs> There's that. But at the same time, because he just thought he was beating the system. And it's just like. No, dude, you chose this, but you didn't realize what you were choosing. Uh huh. You're an idiot. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. He's, he's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yet in the middle of that, somehow manages to make a connection with people in mm-hmm. a really impactful way. Ken Kesey was incredibly bitter about the adaptation. He railed against the producers, said they were butchering his story. He vowed never to see the completed film. Oh, okay. Now, he's a tempestuous guy. Okay. Definitely lives his own world. But his biggest complaint and was the main thrust of a lawsuit against the producers was that his story is entirely from Chief Bromden's perspective, hmm. which has a certain impact. It really does. You have a Native American character who is silent, mm-hmm. who is the view lens for sure. all of this about a story about institutions breaking people down. Totally. That's a big fucking deal. Absolutely. I will say, as an idea for a novel, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. As an idea for this movie, Mm -hmm. I don't think it would work as well. Well, the problem is, for a movie, how do you have chief... Well, there are ways. There are definitely ways. He's a narrator. He's a narrator. You You get a voiceover, but then who's telling the voice? So then you just have this voice... I feel like, again, I have not read the book, so I can't really speak to that. But I feel like Chief gets to have a very active role in this movie with the way it's set up. And he's still very tokenized. I don't want to pretend that he's not. No, no, no. Absolutely. It's 100%. Like, this is not like great indigenous representation because it's not. not. (laughs) It's not. However, Chief is a badass character. Well, and it would (laughs) undercut the impact of that moment. Sure. When we see Chief reveal, I'm faking all this shit. No, they're just just <laughs> just when he offers his gum, he's just like, thanks. Juicy fruit. Oh, you sly son of a bitch, Chief. <laughs> Juicy fruit. <laughs> and- Wait, you've. You can hear me. You it- sly dog. And and he and I just I just love that. His responses to McMurphy are still silent. Uh-huh. He's just shaking his head. Mm-hmm. But it, in it's, just this wonderful way. But what's what's amazing about it is that 
he chose to reveal that to McMurphy. Yeah. I don't think they told us how long he's been there. No. But it's been a while. He talks about how, you know, they they completely just wrecked his dad. Sure. They they wrecked him throughout his whole life and then drove his dad to drink. Sure. And he was like, if I didn't get somewhere, I wasn't going to make it. Sure. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. So, yeah, he's been there a while. So it's just like you chose to tell this guy. This is the guy you reveal your secret to. That was so interesting. But probably because this guy doesn't need to be here. He, he doesn't need to be here. And also, he doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. The one really positive thing about uh-huh. McMurphy's character, and the one thing that you see consistently, is that he does not care what these guys have gone through. Mm-hmm. He does not care that they are considered damaged. Mm-hmm. He will talk to them like human beings. That's true. He, I, I will say that. He talks to them just like any other asshole on the street. <laughs> yeah. Like... Like, Names aside that he says really bad things, he says, but he marginalizes everybody just the same. But at the same time, he humanizes them in the way he interacts with them. In in that really fucked up way, that is how he humanizes them. Exactly. Um, the fishing boat is probably the biggest moment where true. you see it was like, no, all these guys, we're going on a fishing trip. We're just going on a fishing trip. We're just going. Y'all are perfectly capable of going on a fishing trip. And then you're like, "Mm, this is not the best plan. Okay. Maybe there's a little more supervision needed. But for the first time in a long time, they got some agency. Yeah. And he gave and he gave them that opportunity. They got to not be patient. Exactly. And that is important. That is what he his character is offering. Yes. (laughs) Despite all of his flaws. So, yeah, I. I get it. I yeah. get him being pissed, but I also go, I don't know, man. I think this works better for I, a movie. His quote was, they took out the morality. They took out the combine, the conspiracy that is America. And his book is very much more of a meta level looking sure. down. Okay. On things. So I get where he's going. Okay. He's like, they, they stripped that out and made it this sentimental story, which I don't agree with. I don't think it's sentimental. I don't either, but I could see him thinking that for sure. Compared to what he wrote, sure, but I feel like, okay, so this reminds me of the Color Purple adaptation and how that author was able to look at it and be like, this is wildly different from what I wrote, but you were still able to take my thing and make something new that doesn't shit on my thing, but makes it still lovely on its own. And I think that that's where this author is missing that, where it's like, my thing still exists wholly as its thing with its merits and its validity. And you took that and you made your own new thing that also exists with its own merit and validity over here. And that is also okay. He didn't have that grace. No. To be fair, most of what was cut from the novel, including the narration of Chief Bromden, uh-huh. was likely inspired by Kesey's experiences with the LSD trials, which he was doing while he was writing this novel. Oh, okay, yeah. So that <laughs> doesn't really translate well. So some of that was like real wild hallucinogenic shit that probably wasn't going to fit the style they were going for. <laughs> he didn't like Nicholson as an actor either, but that's not a gripe for much of anything because as we get to... I don't care. He's great. He sued for 5% gross and $800,000 in damages. He wound up settling with the producers for 2.5% gross of the film. Damn, that's money. Here's the thing. They really did hack away something very integral to the story. Okay. 
I get them saying, we'll pay you this money because you might have a claim. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Okay. And we don't want to go to court. No. Years later, Ken Kesey stated he was flipping through TV channels when he caught a late night movie that he thought looked interesting, only to realize shortly thereafter that it was this film. And then he quickly changed the channel. To his dying day, he refused to watch this movie. That's one of those. I just, I be- I don't believe that. I believe he's seen it and he just re- will refuse to say that. Say Maybe. that he did. Maybe. Let's talk about our director. Okay. It is Milos Forman. Okay. A Czech director, part of the film explosion that happened in the early to mid 60s in the Czech Republic. But when the Soviets invaded, he was forced to flee because uh, (laughs) they were really hardcore on the censorship train. Okay. So before this, his big Czech movie, among some others, was The Fireman's Ball. But after this, he directs Hair, Ragtime, Amadeus, Valmont. The People versus Larry Flint, Man on the Moon, and Goya's Ghosts. He directed Amadeus? Yes. Fuck me, I gotta watch that movie again. A- and here's the thing, he doesn't direct those movies without doing this one. Oh, yeah, this, this is his meal ticket. What do we think of this directing in this film? You know, it's not, it's not special, let's, let's be clear. He doesn't make any choice that's fantastical or amazing. Because the writing is, and the acting is good. What he did wonderfully was put the camera there and we got to see everyone react to everybody. Exactly. Because that's the most important thing is seeing how these characters react to what everybody's doing because they're so reactive. That's the thing. It's not just somebody talking. It's the person talks and then somebody does something and... It, it it it's all about reactions in this film. This is reaction, the movie. This is one of those situations, and we'll talk about it with the trivia. Okay. Where the director is making a lot of choices and a lot of stylistic decisions that don't look like a whole lot on purpose. Fair. I mean, that's fair. Here's the thing. I don't notice the direction, exactly. yeah. which is the point. Yeah. Because this one thing, the story's good. The performances are good. I shouldn't notice the direction. Yeah. I shouldn't. This this so movie it's good. Is like, yeah. <laughs> so it's good. And again, this is, you know, you think about a movie like Amadeus, which is a very different kind of movie. True. But still an incredibly talented hand. And so you go, you knew what you were doing here, but you did it in such a way that you're you're not overshadowing what's going on. However, part of that I think is also where we get some of the disjointedness and tone. Mm-hmm. So in making this movie, his biggest objective was to get it as naturalistic as he could he almost wanted okay. this to be like a documentary sure and part of that was that his native czechoslovakia everything was either propaganda or very big boisterous comedy like the movies that he made rebelling against the censors were like big weird absurd comedies because that was in directly opposing what, what the censorship would say okay This movie, he's like, absolutely not. I want it to be very verite. And he cited the 1967 documentary Titicut Follies as an inspiration. That was a documentary that I don't recommend people watch. You might find footage. It's incredibly harrowing because it is a documentary about patients in a mental institution in 1967. And it is unflinching and it is dark and it is pretty awful and Mm -hmm. led to investigations of our mental health system. Well, that's positive. Yeah. 
which just to be clear is still severely fucked up today it's, it's still awful it's but almost t- 50 years later and it's yeah. still severely fucked up he used that to say i want to capture that same feeling with these actors because that is the story we are telling it's set in the same time period it's set in the same type of institution mm-hmm Granted, an institution that sounds like it was it was trying much harder to work for the benefit of its patients, the mm-hmm. actual institution. But he he screened that film for the cast, so they got an idea of what life would be like in this horrible ward. <laughs> Nicholson and Fletcher also witnessed actual ECT performed on a patient so that they could view what that would be like, mm-hmm. which I understand. If Jack's going to have to portray that, he's got to see what that's like. <laughs> ECT harrowing at the time. Now it is a procedure that has been refined and has been effective for people. But that is one of the most horrifying scenes in the movie. <laughs> like yeah. watching it makes me go. It, it, I teared up because it's just so hard. It really didn't affect me. I don't know. I think part of it is just like by that point, you have finally started to get on board with McMurphy. And then you see this really horrifying treatment. <laughs> I think. Part of it is I expected it. Fair. And also I've seen other films where electroshock is depicted and it's way more horrifying than here. Fair. Or it's done in a horrifying way that's meant to also be somewhat comical or meant to be horrifying. And here it's just, well, we do this. This is your treatment. It's very plain. It's very matter of fact. To me, those are, this is, this is something for me, like, I find those kinds of scenes far more scary in anything. I remember when we we talk about Inside Man and there's a scene where you see somebody being fake executed, but it's shown on a video camera. Sure. That scene horrified me more than any other like death scene I'd seen in a long time Mm. because it looks so real. Yeah. And that always gets me. When it looks real and convincing, you're like, oh, I don't know. It just, it hits my like my muscle memory somehow. Mm-hmm. Milos Foreman actually stayed and lived at the hospital for four weeks prior to filming. Mm-hmm. And in that time, he observed a lot of the extras and production staff were actual patients at the Oregon State Mental Hospital. One patient hired by the production company had a stutter. He had mm-hmm. stuttered for his entire life. Through working on the film, that stutter disappeared entirely. Oh, wow. They worked closely with the patients. Mm -hmm. They were integrated into the daily production. And this is where I really appreciate it, is that they were working on the staff. It wasn't just that they were in the film. They were also helping with cables and lighting and different things throughout the production. They were production crew. And so the actors and the crew and everybody, they all throughout this production just got used to being around the patients. They were just part of the movie. This is where I think, especially the doctor being in the film, he was using this as an opportunity to engage. I don't know. Again, it's it's still very exploitive. It. I'm so the them working on the crew. There's a part of me that kind of goes, okay, well, this is a thing that's happening here. So this is an opportunity. This is this is a happening. This is an opportunity for busy work to get out of our routines, and it's just you know it's. Kind of like, let's put on, it's like, this is the school play that's happening. Let's work on the school play, everybody. And and that opportunity to give people some agency in a different way than just doing your normal day-to-day routine. Totally. I don't have a problem with that, but the filming part, that still makes me really uncomfortable because, because the working on the crew, 
could end at any moment. Anyone who doesn't want to could, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. Something happens. We're not going to do this anymore. I don't think that, because here's my thing with the filming. If something goes awry while filming, they're not going to stop filming that shit. And they're going to put that shit in the movie. Especially not the way Foreman filmed. And we'll get there in a minute. So so that's what makes that I'm still like, I, I'm still not, uncom- I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this. And also, did these people have the agency to be able to give consent? Or was their family able to give consent for the people who legally did not have? You know what I'm talking about. I'm just like, this is icky and I don't <laughs> like it. Without without a much longer and robust discussion of that, yeah, I it's totally there. I don't trust the production. What I really did like, though, was to hear that, that crew portion. That crew, I, I, I appreciate the crew. I appreciate that the doctor was on set with the crew. Like, I appreciate all of that. Yeah. It's still really weird they were filming in a hospital. That was like, it's it's just, it's weird. It's, I don't love it. It's very weird. (laughs) I'm uncomfortable. It's one of those, I think they did the best they thought they could, even though it was still probably not the best idea in the world. The actors playing the patients, our main group of guys, lived at the hospital during filming. They spent any in-between time on campus just getting used to the routine of daily life. So they almost lived as though they were also patients in the ward. And they stayed in character the whole time. Okay. Foreman would often roll cameras at moments when the cast was not aware. Yep. Yep. That's not good. To capture the real moment. Mm-hmm. Now, again, especially with respect to the patients, that's bad. Mm. With respect to the actors, <laughs> yep. it's, it, it's, it's rough. He relied heavily, though, on reaction shots to pull side characters into scenes. Okay. This is where I go. Like the biggest success of this movie is partly because he was catching people at moments when they didn't think they were on camera. Okay. The flip side of that is that that's where you also get some of those disjointed feeling moments. Mm, okay. Because you're editing all this together. So if the flow's not right, mm. y- you know, you're getting what you're getting in footage and you're capturing all this different stuff, but it, did you cut it together well enough that it flows? Mm. And I think that's where it really comes in. I think the script is the script. Yeah. But Milos and the way they edited this movie is where some of that rough around edgesness comes from. In some of the group therapy sessions, they would film the entire scene. Mm-hmm. That's up to 10 minutes. They would do the scene, but the camera would solely be focused on McMurphy or solely be focused on another character. So they would continue to go through this, but you would just see the reactions. And it works. Even if McMurphy had no dialogue in that Mm -hmm. therapy session, they would just have the camera on him. No, that makes total sense. And that's why we get those beautiful moments. Uh, Some of the best moments are him mimicking what the other actors are doing, thinking it's funny. Sure. It's some of the best scenes with Nicholson. Oh, agreed. (laughs) The shot of Louise Fletcher looking coldly at Jack Nicholson after he comes back from his shock therapy and Mm -hmm. then just zippity-doo-dahs to his seat. Yeah. That's actually her being annoyed at Foreman giving her direction. Oh, okay. (laughs) I like that, though. That's great. But he thought it worked for the scene, so he kept that shot. That works. And his casting was very intentional. He decided that he wanted a big star in the leading role. You needed it. And a cast of relative unknowns around him. 
You needed it. The idea making it believable that they'd adopt him as the leader. Well, so McMurtry has doesn't have to be the most well-known actor, though it helps. He has to be the most captivating actor. Definitely. And your supporting cast of patients needs to be a equal mix of unknowns and non-distracting. Yeah. So you can have a more famous person than this person, and that's fine depending on how many how many lines they're going to have, what their role in the film is going to be, but also what are you going to have them do in the film? Yeah. Because it's kind of like what I said uh, when we saw Dunkirk, and I was like, your casting of Harry Styles was distracting because he's so famous everybody knows who that fucker is and he did nothing in that film i am distracted the whole film because like well you put him in this role so what is he doing (laughs) what is he here for what is he here for what's his job you can't stunt cast a movie like especially a movie like this you you can stunt cast the hell out of it but you gotta be careful about you have to be very strategic so harding could have been stunt cast yeah, but Harding, the the doctor could have been stunt cast. Ratchet could be stunt cast. You could stunt cast Chief. You could stunt cast Babbitt. You really could. But they didn't. They didn't. That's fine. You really could stunt cast this film, but you have to. You, again, it's all about balance. You really have to balance it out. So I'm glad I, the choices they made were good. He actually cast most of the actors after having them perform in group therapy scenes. Oh, that's great. That's exactly how you figure out the mix. Oh, no, absolutely. You have them do that, play different roles. That's also how you figure out the chemistry. Exactly. It's like casting a family. I got to mix y'all up and see how y'all work together. Look, whatever whatever issues that Foreman might have created in the way he filmed the movie, mm-hmm. he cast this pitch perfectly. Sure. You could not ask for a better mix of actors to make this movie. And... Honestly, that's where this movie really launches off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like everything else about it is just like really solid. Like, yeah, this is really cool. But the cast is what makes it shine. Mm. And we start off with our lead, Jack Nicholson as R.P. McMurphy. Guess what? This is the first time (laughs) we are talking about Jack Nicholson. I knew you were going to say that because we've seen all of his. I mean, he hasn't done a whole lot. The last couple of years, but we've seen it. He's relatively retired at this point. Yeah. He he pops up occasionally in some stuff, but he is Af- he is very much a retired guy. After that last Oscar, he's just, just like, okay, I'm good. Yeah. I'm not allowed to do this anymore. He's fine. So before this, he was in the original horror film, The Little Shop of Horrors in 1960. Mm-hmm. The Raven, The Terror, The Shooting, Hell's Angels on Wheels, Psych Out, the Monkeys movie Head, which he co-produced, Easy Rider, mm-hmm. which he also co-produced. Then on a clear day, you can see Forever, Five Easy Pieces, Carnal Knowledge, A Safe Place, The King of Marvin Gardens, The Last Detail, Chinatown, The Passenger, and he has a cameo in Tommy. Mm. He's coming off his big run in the 70s. Yeah. Leading up to this. Yeah, Easy Rider. For sure. Five Easy Pieces, King of Marvin. Chinatown. Like, he's he's oh, getting huge by this point. You said point. Chinatown, right? Chinatown's yeah. a huge one as well. Which I have not seen. We'll get there. And that's Roman Polanski. Ah, fuck, no. I don't want to. It's but really it, good, though. Oscar nominated, didn't it? Fuck, we're going to have to watch it. It's it. We do not like Roman Polanski in this house. 
After this, he's in The Missouri Breaks, The Last Tycoon, Going South, The Shining, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Reds, The Border, Terms of Endearment, Pritzy's Honor, Heartburn, The Witches of Eastwick, Broadcast News, Ironweed, Batman, The Two Jakes, A Few Good Men, Hoffa, Mars Attacks, As Good As It Gets, The Pledge, About Schmidt, Anger Management, Something's Gotta Give, The Departed, The Bucket List, I'm Still Here, and How Do You Know? What do we think of Jack Nicholson in this movie? He's phenomenal. This is the height of his powers. Okay, but okay. So when the films start, when he's the beginning of the film and he's wearing the hat, he's uh-huh. got the beanie on. I'm like, who does he look like? I was like, oh, it's it's young Jack Nicholson. Okay, cool. Like I mean, he's an attractive man, but I was like, who does he look like? He looks like somebody, and it was bugging me. It was bugging me, and then I realized when you when you cover the hairline because he has a very distinct hairline. Yeah. And you just look at from the nose to the eyebrows, he looks exactly like Warren Beatty. Except. Except this fucker can act. He, so well. He only has three characters, but they are very well defined and they're amazing. It's actually really funny because he has a very similar career to Beatty. Like he did a bunch. He, he acted a whole hell of a lot sure. more because that's all he did in the early 60s. But he was just like, bit roll, bit roll, bit roll. I'm just a working actor. But at the same time... He was producing. He works with Bob Raffleson and he produces movies. And in that process, that's how he builds up the producing clout to go make himself a star in things. Well, yeah. It, just like Douglas, it's like he starts banking fuck tons of money so that I can make myself a star. And to be fair, he does he does get some breaks where he gets to like some big roles sure. that he didn't produce. Sure. And then he also just made some really smart deals. I mean, his deal with Batman was insane at the time, but it worked too. I mean, he made so much fucking money because he knows how to make a deal. Exactly. I mean, the dude, I mean, the dude knows how to make a make a deal. But he just man, does. He he is at the height of his Jack Nicholson powers in this movie. And he's he's got the acting chops to back it up. He's always been incredibly charming, especially at this point. When he's still, like, weirdly, ruggedly attractive Jack Nicholson. Yeah. And he's such a sleazebag that you still can't help but like a little bit. <laughs> like, I hate you, but you're also, in your own weird way, yeah, kind like, of lovely. Like, I don't want to sleep with you, but I still want to hang out at the bar with you. Because you're fun. He's fun, and again... He doesn't care what happened to these guys. No. He's going to treat them all the same he'd treat anybody else. It's very much, I have to spend my time with y'all, so we're going to make this as pleasant as possible for me. God damn it. <laughs> this is my house. Uh-huh. We're going to make it to the way I want it. Man, when he has the party and him doing the lights and being like, medication time. <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's so good. It's so great. I it's just just pure distilled McMurphy. I loved it. Like you say, he's got those three characters. He's got those lanes. But especially in this movie, you see he understands those lanes so well that he knows how to sort of level up and down within that lane. There's a lot of subtlety that he's got in this character. Mm-hmm. And it's it it's just magical. And it really does hold all everything together. Yep. It's a really good performance. So he must have sent something about how the success of this film was going to go because he only took percentage points. This was a relatively low budget film and he He was too expensive. He would probably be too expensive, but he took the percentage points 
And because of the success of the film, it made him tons of money. <laughs> Hells yeah. Hells yeah, he made fuck tons of money. Smart guy. <laughs> Again, he must have known. He just must have known that this was going to be a hit. Most of the cast would stay in character during filming, even when the cameras weren't rolling. So when Nicholson first arrived, because they were all there for a while, working on characters, working on scenes. And then he came to set. When he came in, he was incredibly disturbed by how realistic everything was. He ran outside and asked somebody, do they ever break character? (laughs) However, he did have a point. Sidney Lassick, who plays Cheswick in the movie, became more and more emotionally unpredictable throughout the filming of the movie. Okay. He literally started to morph into Cheswick. During the final scene, when Chief is smothering McMurphy, he was off screen. Mm -hmm. He became so upset in a giant emotional outburst that they had to remove him from set in order to film. Hmm. He started to dive way too deep into the character. It just really emotionally affected him. Yeah. And Cheswick is a character that is tapping so deeply into deep emotional wells. Well, and the thing about Cheswick is that character, I'm not I'm not a psychiatrist. I've not studied psychology. I've just watched a lot of TV and movies. <laughs> that character has a very childlike quality. Yeah. Wherein they have they have clearly had some trauma because everything that character does is to get approval of whoever the parent in the room is. It's why it's so amazing when he stands up and yells about the cigarettes. Come on. I don't want his cigarettes and I don't want his or 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 even yours. Do you understand that? I want my cigarettes, Miss Ratchet. I want my cigarettes. I want mine, Miss Ratchet. What gives you the damn right to keep on with cigarettes? Piled up on your desk and to squeeze out a pack only when you feel like it, huh? Uh, oh, of, of course, that's what's happened because that that's what happened. So McMurtry became like his quote unquote dad yeah. at a point. That's that became his parent. Yeah. And then that that was also why he couldn't say no to Ratchet because that's mom yeah. in their in their situation. And I could just see I I mean, just it, it just happens when you work on something when you artistically you just get really emotionally attached it just becomes really hard to get yourself out of that headspace or that emotional space especially if you spent that long of a production that long in character the entire time which is dangerous and you know especially with these darker films you just have onset therapy just constantly just to, to, it's like you know we're talking more and more about have you know like intimacy coordinators. You also should have some therapists on board to just talk about you know like uh, character immersion and all that crap. This is just good plan. There should just be therapists everywhere all the time. They, <laughs> this, is, this is my new plan. They brought stuff up about about Sydney Lassick to Doctor Brooks, and Doctor okay. Brooks said, "I understand. If something does happen, we have everything we need to help care for him." Well, that's great. So Doctor Brooks was. Dr. Brooks was examining these guys and offering advice if he needed to. Well, that's great. So um, that that was there for them. But like in an official capacity. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I, that's, it's, that's sad. And that's just sad. <sighs> to me, the thing about this movie, it's like, look, I love Jack Nicholson's performance. 
But to me, the thing that gets me so much are all of these other characters. All these other characters and actors just hit me right in the heart. He is held up by them. Not to say that he's not good, but he's not interesting without their reflection. It's all about reactions. Yeah, this is a movie about reactions. Yeah. He is not as interesting without their reflection. And so, like I said, I love him, but... True. Um, he's fa- he's phenomenal. The the amazing stuff in this movie comes from everybody else. And, and I mean, it's, it's that give and take relationship. He has to give them something to react to, but their reactions are gold. Now, we know Jack Nicholson has a pretty big ego. No. But in the case of this movie, he might have asserted it for the better. Okay. So, the longstanding rumor was that production got shut down for two months on the film because Nicholson got hair plugs. Okay. That's not true. You can see by his hairline, there's no indication of plugs whatsoever. No, that dude does not have hair plugs. The real story is a little more fascinating. Ooh. Foreman's original plan for the narrative of the movie was that the ward was in complete chaos when McMurphy arrived. Oh, okay. And McMurphy would somehow settle everybody into their roles. Oh, no. Nicholson said, that's a terrible idea. He instead thought that McMurphy would have no emotional impact as a character if they were already revolting against Nurse Ratched. Absolutely. He's 100% correct. And at that point, what's the point to my character? Agreed. What am I here for? They battled for a while over this. Foreman thought his idea was correct. And neither of them were budging. The two months was actually two weeks. And Jack Nicholson wasn't gone. He ran a mutiny with the rest of the cast against Foreman. He uh, refused to allow Foreman to run rehearsals, running them himself. So this is bad, but also he's a producer, so he has that power. He's not a producer. Oh, he's not. No, he's just an actor who's getting points in his contract. Oh, I mean, this... It's bad, but I get, it works I, for the movie. I, I, get, this is, I mean, you have the biggest dick energy. The only thing I can think is that he also talked to Zance and Douglas about this. That's the only way you pull this off and you make it work. And not you, get fired. Is you go to the producers and be like, this guy's going to fucking ruin this movie if I don't take this over. Y'all want to make money? We all want to make money, right? Because <laughs> we got a great script. We got a great cast. We going to make money? Fuck this guy. Like, look. Yeah, I, I'm, a- I'll still work with him. But this is how this is going to fucking work. Yeah. He became the de facto yeah. director when it came to the cast. Yeah. All those guys have the biggest dick energy. Yeah. That's how that works. But like I said, this is one of those few situations where I was like, <sighs> the BDE worked in his favor. White dudes. Nicholson and Foreman only spoke to each other for the rest of the production through the cinematographer. Yeah, I believe that. And whenever media or studio execs came to set, they then faked a happy relationship. In order to keep the production going. Good for them. It's one of those weirdest things where they're like, we know we're in a death battle here, but also we want this movie to succeed. (laughs) Here's what I'll say here. Well, biggest dick energy, which white dudes, seriously. Very much. They also, I will say this. They essentially put the production above everything else. They put their jobs above anything they, else. They, they, put, they put being successful above everything else. Yeah. yeah. So like, I respect that a little bit. This story is very likely why Jack Nicholson does not appear in any special features for this film. <sighs> yeah. There are interviews with everybody else, but Nicholson does not talk about it. Because it would probably get him in a big fucking trouble. Yeah. 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 He would probably get sued and they would have cause. But you know what? 
It worked. It worked out fine. He was right. Nicholson did actually try to lift the water fountain, and he got big scrapes on his arms after doing so. I thought you were going to tell me he got a hernia. No. However, he gets the line of the century after he does it. Mm. But I tried, didn't I? God damn it. At least I did that. Oh, that moment is so good and such a distillation of his character. But I tried, didn't I? <laughs> He's like, I know I'm in debt to y'all for like 50 bucks now, but fuck it. It was worth it to prove a point. He's that, I mean. <laughs> He's that guy. He is. <sighs> Who could have been better? Oof. Marlon Brando. Boo. Gene Hackman. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Get the vibes. Not as much big dick energy, though. Not as much fun. Gene Ackman would have been amazing as Harding. Oh, he could have been, yes. Yep. Steve McQueen. Uh, I've never seen anything with Steve McQueen. Burt Reynolds. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he would have done it. But you kind of got to make him more of like a cowboy guy. James Caan. Mm. Also, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I don't love James Caan. I don't love him. But especially in the 70s, he had the swagger. I get it. I get it. And John Voight. No, not hot. All right. We get on to our next actor. And that is Louise Fletcher Fletcher. as Nurse Ratched. Before this, she did TV in the late 50s, took a long hiatus from acting after having two sons to raise her family, Mm -hmm. and then started up acting again in 1974 with Robert Altman's Thieves Like Us before getting this role. Wow. After this... Exorcist to The Heretic, The Cheap Detective, The Lady in Red, Firestarter, Once Upon a Time in America, Nobody's Fool, The 1987 Flowers in the Attic, The Karen Carpenter Story, Blue Steel, The Player, Virtuosity, Two Days in the Valley, High School High, and Cruel Intentions. What do we think about Louise Fletcher in this movie? Bitter old hag. <sighs> no, I mean, she, she plays her part. You just, you're like, you hateful shrew of a bitch woman. Like, like when he calls her a cunt, you're like, yep. <laughs> They've shown enough for it to be like every time you're like, I don't know about about this guy calling this woman out. But every time you're like, no, she's that horrible. Yeah. And it's like, yep, you were having you, you, this is the corner of the world where you are in charge of everything. You're God here. And, and oh. you love that. The way she wields that power, too, and the way that she... There is this thing where you could see this idea in Ratchet's mind that she is doing something therapeutic, but in reality, she is damaging these men so much. Like, the whole Billy Bibbit thing at the end is horrifying. Um, I can explain everything. Please do, Billy. Explain everything. Everything? Aren't you ashamed? No, I'm not. You know, Billy, what worries me is how your mother's going to take this. Oh, I love that. 
not because it's good, but I just, I love that because she's doing it just to punish, not Billy. It has nothing to do with Billy. It's all how she's punishing McMurphy. She knows Billy is the one who's good. She knows he's going to react to this. Yeah. And she wants to make McMurphy feel bad. Yeah. Because she knows we're going to get a show out of this. We're going to get a big outburst from Billy with if I do this. So let me press this button because I want to make McMurphy feel bad because he's feeling real good about himself right now. Let's ruin that. And then the consequences. And the consequences, which I called that. I was like, that guy's going to kill himself. Because, you know, I was like, it's a movie that takes place in a mental institution. Someone has to kill themselves. It's a trope. It's going to happen. Well, and also Billy Bibbit is the character who has been noted as suicidal. Yeah. I was like, the second that woman showed up and they're like, they're going to have sex. I was like, oh, after he is no longer around that lady, he is going to commit suicide. I'm not trying to be flippant about it. It's just trope. Yeah. But it's it's her manipulation of it. Oh, yeah. And doing all these things that in no way are actually trying to help these guys. It's all about control. It is about control. There's a part of her that believes she's helping them. Oh, yeah. But she's getting off on the power that she wields, mm-hmm. particularly with McMurphy. Oh. She loves it. Like, I love the the vote. No, there's 18 patients here. Like, all of it. It's perfect. It's just, it, that stuff is great. And she never smiles. She, you never, you never get a hint that he's, re- that you really don't get a sense that he's got to her. Just that, I will not be beaten by you. There's, you, I will not be beaten ever. We do, we get one smile from her. And it's at the end of the movie when she's in a fucking neck brace. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> she's in a neck brace and he's had a lobotomy. Yeah. That's when she smiles. Yep. Because she won. She won. She broke him. Mm-hmm. And she won. Which is, again, evil. And this movie makes me want to go watch the show Ratchet. David, and I, we watched the movie last night. We had a big yeah. conversation about this. I'm loath to give Ryan Murphy any more of my attention. <laughs> But the thing about this movie is there's only two characters that are super interesting. It's McMurphy and it's Ratchet. And the thing about Ratchet is we don't know anything the fuck about her. We yeah. don't she's evil as fuck. And one of the things that is interesting about villains is like how do they become villains? Were they born evil or were they made evil? It's one of, it's one of the two. And so that thought experiment with this whole film, we have we don't know anything about her. We don't know if she has a family. We, we we know nothing. We don't actually know her name. They called her Mildred at some point, but like. That is her name. <laughs> okay. But we just, we have no context for this woman. Yeah. And it's just fascinating. So it's like, who was she before then? Yeah. And so it just makes me kind of go, okay, so what did Ryan Murphy imagine for this woman? It concerns me, but you know. Yeah. Because that dude is problematic as fuck. Yeah. I. I <sighs> Originally, I was just like, no, absolutely not. Oh, and, same. And if I recall correctly, I think it was because it, I was hearing about it coming off of seeing Joker. And I was like, no, no more. Same. No more mental illness trauma porn. I can't. No. Um, exactly. But I but I agree with you in that there is room with this character to actually 
do some type of an exploration. Well, it's the same thing with, you know, Disney doing the uh, the villain films. Yeah. It's just like, who is this person? And so long as you come up with something interesting, a good story, and then you execute it well, this can be great. The problem is Disney's doing a fucking horrible job with it. Yeah. The only truly good villain backstory for a woman that I've seen, because they've done it with some dudes pretty pretty interestingly. I won't say good, but interesting. Only good female villain story that we've had is Wicked. Wicked, if you've read the books, books are phenomenal. The musical, which is nothing like the book, but also amazing, gives us a whole backstory where you're like, cool, interesting. I get it. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just like, this woman... I mean, like, she's just crazy. So, yeah, it's just, it's, it, it, this movie makes me want to go watch that. And I'm just like, oh, man, it does look pretty. And Sarah Paulson's amazing. So maybe it'll be okay. It's quarantines. I can watch 10 episodes of TV and call it a day. <laughs> Literally a day. Fletcher auditioned repeatedly for the role for six months. Fuck. Uh, Foreman, each time she, she auditioned, said, something's not landing right. Every time she came in, he was just like, it's just not working. Sorry. <laughs> and he, but he kept hey, just, calling her back. There's just something about it. Huh. And we'll, we'll go ahead and do this now. There's a who could have been better. One big who could have yep. been better. Lily Tomlin. Tomlin. Lily Tomlin's role in Nashville was what? written for Louise Fletcher mm-hmm. because Louise Fletcher is the child of deaf parents. Yes. So that was written with her in mind. Sure. And she'd worked with him a year earlier. Lily Tomlin was actually offered this role. Yeah. But she did not believe she was prepared to take this kind of a role on. Because she hadn't done drama before at that she, point. And she had not done film. Oh, that's right. Because Nashville was her film debut. Right. She okay. had done lots of theater and yeah. lots of improv and comedy, but she had never done mm-hmm. a film. Okay. Yeah. And Fair. S- and so they wound up flipping roles. <laughs> they swapped roles. So he kept calling her back and finally something stuck and he went, I, I, I've called you back this many times. You're the right person. Yeah. No, I, I get that. It's just like, I just. Uh... Something's not right. No. <laughs> but couldn't no, I, stop. I, no, I get that. You're just like, it's nobody else is right. But for something about you that I just can't not, you just, you're sticking in my head. Yeah. So that's important. The thing is, she's not overly compelling. She's not this overly attractive woman. It's one of those perfect castings of, this is going to sound like an insult, but it's not. It's not. It's, she's an unremarkable woman. Which is the entire point. Exactly. Yeah. And that's not an insult. It's like, that's why you're so amazing. I I liken it to like a Kathy Bates in Misery. It's just like, you? (laughs) She has to be completely unassuming in order for it to work. Also because she has to be that robotic mm-hmm. in the presence of such big personalities. Sure. It was a difficult, conflicted role for her. Oh, it, it would have to be for anyone. Because it's one of the most difficult, conflicted roles anybody's ever done. She was so disturbed by her performance in the film that for years after, she couldn't watch it. Oh, fair. Because it was just so, it, it was so wrenching for her to have to do. Sure. She said the entire time I was just so upset that everybody else was able to laugh and joke and play around and I just had to be cold and heartless. Aww. In fact, near the end of the movie, she got so frustrated, she stripped to her underwear in an attempt to somehow prove that she was not a cold-hearted monster. That's funny. She just ran in front of this room of guys and was like, I'm not horrible. I'm spontaneous too. That's funny. 
this is a hard movie to make. Sure. (laughs) She felt it was important to make the character human, Mm. but unsympathetic. She understood that this role was pure evil, but she could not. She felt like it was impossible to play it that way. So she determined that Ratchet did actually care for the patients. Sure. And she thought that the effort she was taking was the best for them. Sure. But she was ultimately misguided by her standard of care and drunk on her own power. Sure. The thing is that totally reads. And that, yep. That's why that's why she's so fascinating. I know. She's like, yeah, hey, you are drunk on your power and you think that this is going to make these patients better. Yep. You're fucking wrong, but uh-huh. you think this is what's best. Fletcher said that Ratchet's hairdo, which was incredibly tight and old-fashioned for the time, was both a signifier of her character and also... It did not go unnoticed, the devil horns (laughs) on top. Yeah. And she apparently was not aware how sought out the role was until the reporter mentioned it to her during the filming. Because let's get into the other who could have been betters. Interesting. Anne Bancroft. Oh, wow. Ellen Burstyn. Ooh, that's a good one. Faye Dunaway. Jane Fonda. No. Audrey Hepburn. No. Angela Lansbury. Ooh. Jean Moreau. Shirley MacLaine yeah. and Geraldine Page. Okay. The biggest actresses of the 70s were all vying yes. for this role. Uh, yes, this, yes. Wow. Those are some good names. <laughs> and Louise Fletcher was like, I didn't know that everybody was trying to get this. <laughs> wow. I beat them. <laughs> I'm the winner. <laughs> That's how I would just be like, and finally, for the main cast, mm-hmm. Brad Dourif playing Billy Bibbit. It's Chucky, y'all. You kept, you, like, you're like, it's Brad Dourif, it's Brad Dourif. And I was like, who the fuck is that? And we like, talked about him not thought, long enough ago. Yeah, whatever. But then you're like, it's Chucky. I'm like, oh, yeah. Because I kept looking at him and like, I know I recognize him, but why do I recognize him? Because he does show up in Chucky as himself. As as Charles. As Charles. But I, you yeah. know, I just, it's, it's been a while. I've slept since then. I yeah. don't care. Chucky and Deadwood. Oh yeah. He is in Deadwood. Yep. That's the other big one that we remember him from. Oh, I need to watch Deadwood again. This is Brad Dourif's film debut. He's, I mean, he's great. Wow. He, he is. He's fabulous. And I, yeah, now, now I'm thinking about like, oh, that voice now. He's, he's such a baby. He is. Such a sweet kid. And, and like. You know, you you get that intimation because we have this thing now of like, uh oh, he's kind of a creepy guy trying to hit on women, but he's not. He's just pure, and and he all he wants is just like he wants to, to be loved. He's so lonely. <laughs> he wants to be loved. And that final scene, just to see that knife twisted in his heart, is yep. gut wrenching. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. so hard to watch. To watch him be so finally confident in himself that he doesn't stutter, mm-hmm. and then to just be torn to shreds. Yeah, that's the thing where it's just like he is so confident he's not stuttering, which I loved. I loved that that was that was a choice that was made in the script and the writing, and and then I, the camera just stays on him as he melts. And then it, what this the mention of his mom, it it goes away. Nope. Oh, oh man, he's he's just fantastic. Oh yeah, and. He he does get the sort of featured role among all of the 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 other featured players, mm-hmm. but he he definitely deserves the mention with this main cast as being that shiner, the the shining guy out of everybody. Who could have been better? Michael mm-hmm. Douglas, 
Not okay. getting McMurphy, he angled for this role to try he's, to get in. He's too old for this at this point. He, and not just not the right guy. Like he he has a very specific look and, and feel as an actor and he, not for this. He I mean, he could have done Harding, but that's it. He was pretty young in 75 still, but he's not a baby face. I know, but that's why I'm saying like he could have done like a Harding role. Because Harding's just a married guy. Harding could have could have been really any age and worked um he yeah he could have done that he also could have been the christopher lloyd role if they wanted to like shave his head or something Ugh, don't don't shave my Douglas's head <laughs> he doesn't have the face for that also who could have been better bud court harold from harold and maude <gasps> interesting he would have been very good all right let's get to arpons there's a lot of them oh yes there are and let me say there are some arpons here i'm not going to talk about we we kind of have mentioned them but the actor who played harding the actor who played cheswick not big name guys. No. Just very great character mm-hmm. actors. So like there's lots of these cast members who are just great, but this was their big thing. I'm going to start with Will Sampson playing Chief Bromden. Mm-hmm. This is his film debut. After this, he's only in The Outlaw Josie Wales, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, and Firewalker. Um, he actually, I believe, passed away in the 80s. Okay. He was a park ranger in Oregon. Okay. He was not an actor, but they did not have any indigenous people that they that they could source for casting who fit the size and description of the character. Okay. And so they looked around the area and they found Will Sampson. That's kind of cool. Yep. But Will Sampson, because he made such an impression here, got some other roles and got to do some acting alongside. I like that. that. So it was. It's a very neat thing that he is a non-actor, which is he does a great job. <laughs> we have Michael Berryman playing Ellis. He is the guy who gets the whiskey IV during the party. Oh, okay. Big guy. He's a big horror actor because of his face and his look. Mm-hmm. Um, you might know him as one of the big featured players in The Hills Have Eyes. I haven't seen that. Scatman Crothers playing Turkle, legendary jazz singer and performer who became an actor of some note. You'd know him best as being the hotel caretaker in The Shining who hands over the keys to Jack Nicholson. All right, nice. Danny DeVito playing Martini. Man, he's a baby face. He's so young. You know what it is? He doesn't have those eyebrows. He doesn't have the eyebrows and he doesn't have the The hair sticking out from the side. The tufts. Yeah, because they they grew that out for Taxi and that became his signature. Yes. But he's so different in this movie. He was the first actor cast for the film. Okay. He reprised his role from an off-Broadway revival in 1971. Okay. So he played Martini on stage. He got incredibly homesick and drained making the movie, which I'm sure it's a tough set. Um, yeah. And he wanted to be with his girlfriend and eventual future wife, Rhea Perlman. Okay. So he developed a coping mechanism, an imaginary friend who he talked to nightly. Aww. He just had conversations. He got a little concerned that he was doing this every night. Okay. So he went and talked to Dr. Brooks. I do love that. That's good. That's smart. Who is advising, of course. He was worried. He's like, am I losing it? Am I okay? And the doctor said, you don't need to worry at all. As long as you still know that the character is fictional and it is imaginary, you're fine. I was just like, oh, that's adorable and amazing. (laughs) I just want to give Danny DeVito a hug. Danny DeVito is the most amazing human on the face of the planet. Just go watch It's Always Sunny. Go read just, his tweets. His tweets are fucking incredible. But like, just his whole thing on It's Always Sunny, just his existence on that show is just 
You want to be on the show? Okay. Well, the fact that he he helped produce it. I know, but it's just, you want to do this thing? Okay. I'm tripping balls. (laughs) It's just so funny. Uh, Christopher Lloyd playing Tabor. This is also his film debut. You know what's really, truly frightening? (laughs) His face has not changed (laughs) at all. He has like maybe one more forehead wrinkle. (laughs) That's it. Nothing has changed. I love Christopher Lloyd. I he's love the best. I love him as the angry guy. Yes. In this movie. Like, I know that he's always kind of the wild-eyed guy. He's always wild-eyed and loud. But like in this one, he is the guy who is just pissed at everyone and impatient. And then he gets to have the one you get to have the catharsis through him at the end. I love his reaction to Chief blowing up the door. Yeah. It's so good. Because it's so what we're feeling in that moment. Vincent Schiavelli playing Fredrickson. Recognizable character actor. We've talked about him before in Tomorrow Never Dies, Ghost, and Fast Times at Richmond High. Yeah, he's everywhere. He's one of our regular Arpons. He had a great quote about making this movie. Quote, you had to be in this movie who you would be if you were insane. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I think, that, that guides how they develop their characters. Interesting. Aurore Clement playing a lady on the pier. We've talked about her before. She was the love interest that came about in the middle of Apocalypse Now on the French plantation. Hmm. Angelica Houston is a woman in the crowd on the pier. Oh, really? Hmm. And finally, Saul Zance as the captain on the shore of the boat. Saul Zance is the producer of this film, along with Michael Douglas. Oh, okay. Okay, let's get to nominations. And boy, there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Best picture, best actor for Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. This caps a three-year run for him. We talked about Al Pacino. Sure. He got nominated for best actor for The Last Detail, Chinatown, and then this film. Also, three classic movies. Best actress for Louise Fletcher. Mm-hmm. Best supporting actor for Brad Dourif. Okay. Best director for Milos Forman. Mm-hmm. Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, okay. Best Film Editing, okay. and Best Original Score. Okay. All the big awards. <laughs> the big ones. It stands head and shoulders above all the movies we've watched so That's far. true. I mean, it just, just does. I mean, just in the, and it all comes down to the quality of the story. It truly does. And it, it has one, and then they executed it well. Our, our biggest complaint with the other films has been that they had a really good idea, but they didn't do anything with it. Really? The comparison is between this and Jaws. Oh, yeah. Jaws is this year. I forget. That's the fight. Yeah, that is the fight. Interesting. Oh, I, for- I keep forgetting Jaws is in the mix. And I got to say, between these two movies, I feel like they're both equally successful. They're doing very different things. Yeah, it's... That's what it is. Yeah. You know, it's... it's That's very true. That it, it's like... It's like my problem with 1917 and, and Parasite. It's like... You both did your job so well. Yeah. You did you did such different things so perfectly, and I'm not mad at either one of you. All right. Though arguably those two are perfect films, and these two are not. Not perfect, but very good. All right. Finally, trivia. Trivia. During filming, a crew member was running cables and accidentally left a second story window open. A patient oh God. A patient climbed through the bars and fell to the ground, injuring himself. The Statesman Journal in Salem, Oregon, reported the incident with the very fun headline, quote, 
one flew out of the cuckoo's, cuckoo's nest. nest. I mean, it was right there. You had to. <laughs> it would it would have been a missed opportunity. During the fishing scene, everybody but Jack Nicholson got seasick. <laughs> Aww. And that scene took a week to film. Oh. So that was rough going. Oh, no. Danny DeVito still gets ill to this day thinking about filming that scene. <laughs> I've never gotten seasick. To be fair, also, they're filming that boat, like, spinning around in circles sure. on choppy water. Like, sure. it's not like they were just in a boat. <laughs> they oh, were, like, geez. flying all over the, the water. Upon arriving at the hospital, the script called for McMurphy to leap on a guard and kiss him. Okay. While filming, Milos felt that the guard's reaction was too telegraphed. Because they knew this was coming. They telegraphed it out. Sure. So he went over to Jack, and he said, jump on the other guard. <laughs> that actor was surprised and not pleased. And in some versions, you can see that guard punch Nicholson after he jumps on him. That's funny. <laughs> Actor William Redfield, who played Harding, was sick throughout filming. Mm. And Dr. Brooks correctly diagnosed him with cancer that eventually took his life shortly after the film's release. Mm. Per Michael Douglas, by the time they got to film the party scene, everybody was excited. Quote, they needed a break. It was a tough, long picture, unquote. Fair. <laughs> you put that scene near the end so everybody gets a nice breather. Party, party. And during the basketball scene, Jack Nicholson improvised getting on actor Joseph Elich's shoulders, Banchini. Oh, uh, okay. That was not planned. He told Elich, if I fall, I close this picture down for a week. Joseph Elich replied, if I fall... I close this picture down for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <sighs> all right. Ratings. Ooh, that's hard. As with all of our movies, they have their own individual rating system. Mm -hmm. For this film, we gotta go with the water fountain. No, we go with cigarettes. Oh, How many dimes? A dime. How many dimes? Hit me. Hit me. Hit me. Hit me. <laughs> that cracked me out. <laughs> I can't hit you. It's not your turn. See these other guys over here? Hit me. <laughs> um, All right. How how many cigarettes are we going to give it? This is my film. Yep. I've seen it. Uh -huh. It is a little rough around the edges. Absolutely. It's not, it's not perfectly fine-tuned. But the characters are so compelling. And it hit me in the feels really hard, mm -hmm. just like it did the first time. Still floors me. I'm going to go four and a half. All right. I was going to go four. It's very good. It's a great story. It holds up. I really enjoyed it. Didn't really hit me in the feels, just because I'm a robot. <laughs> as far as movies go that people tell you you have to see, this is one of those that you should go ahead and see. I'm I'm okay with it being on that list. Yeah. Like, I get it. Like, I get the hype. Yeah. I don't think it's the best movie I've ever made, but I get the hype. So, yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I'm going to go four. Well, next up. Are you ready for a double feature? Depends on the double feature. You've gotten me. This, this series has been hard. These movies have not been good, David. How about a double musical feature? I'm listening. A double musical Barbara Streisand feature. I don't know. Last time we Barbara Streisand musical, it was rough. See, a little movie called Funny Lady got nominated this year in 1975. Okay. But that's a sequel. Oh, yes. To a arguably much better known musical film called Funny Girl. Oh, yes. And um, the self-professed musical lady has never seen it. And we are going to watch both of them. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. I've never seen either of these. Neither and when I. I saw Funny Lady coming up, I'm like, I can't watch the sequel no. and not have the context. No, we can't. That's going to be weird. That's just wrong. And I get to make David watch two musicals, so I'm here for that. Uh, as far as I know, Funny Girl might be more of a musical, a pure musical. Funny Lady might just be a movie with songs. But still. that's You know, but that's how Thoroughly Modern Millie was. Yeah. Which was great, except for, you know, all the, the racism. racism. Oh, the, the racism. The racism and the white slavery. But uh, we're going to get we're going to get some big Barbara Streisand here and some other really good actors that are not Walter Matthau. Oh, OK, well, he's he's coming later. Don't worry. But in a different thing. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Uh, First up, though, funny girl and funny lady. All righty, then. But before we go, we have some new movies we need to talk about. New movies. <laughs> all right well today we watched judas and the black messiah bill o'neill infiltrates the black panther party per fbi agent mitchell and j edgar hoover as party chairman fred hampton ascends falling for a fellow revolutionary en route a battle wages for o'neill's soul this movie was really good it's very fucking good and I'm really happy that more people are going to know who Fred Hampton is. Yeah. So when we watched the trial of the Chicago 7, we I personally, because I didn't know very much, learned a little bit more about who he was. And then um, they referenced his death in that film. So I kind of had some context for what was going to happen in this film. And then I got to see what happened. Uh, so that was very helpful to Diana, who knows, <laughs> who knows jack shit about history. So that was good. That was, I mean, it, Daniel Kailua. My understanding is that he's going to be most likely put in the best supporting actor category. <sighs> wow. Which I understand because the, the movie's really about Bill O'Neill. Bill O'Neill's character, which I, I do understand, which kind of sucks because that also means that he's up against Leslie Odom Jr. And those two, I mean, those two are it's 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 between for me it's between those two for the Oscar and that is a tight race. I mean personally I'm going with Kaluuya because that to me it's it's a 1A 1B situation where I was like I will not that's going to be my one and two. <laughs> like we we can already cuz if you've been following us and how we do Oscars for the the top I think it's eight categories it's seven or eight I can I can never keep track. Um we do a first place second place um, and how we do it to help di differentiate, because otherwise our scorecards look the exact same. <laughs> that's that's one of the categories that we do at first place, second place. And that's just how it's going to have to be, because I just, it's going to be so hard. Kalia is channeling Fred so much. There's been lots of interviews and, and discussion and stuff that I, I really want to go listen to mm -hmm. more about. You know, I, I think Stanfield deserves a lot of credit for this role as well. It I know that he might not get the nomination. But especially in the second half of this movie, man, there's so much conflict he's having to deal with. And he's talked about how he needed lots and lots of time and care after this movie to process mm -hmm. because he, he very flat out says he's like, I hate this man. Like everything I've had to learn about this man makes me just hate, hate him, him for what he did. And I, there's just some framing of this film that they did really well, I think. And I, I just feel like he's getting overshadowed by Chadwick Boseman. And I'm sorry, but Lakeith blows Chadwick out of the water 
with his performances versus Chadwick. I'm sorry. There's no competition for me. <laughs> like it's not a dig on Chadwick. He's an amazing, he, he's an amazing performer, uh, but it's Lakeith all day long for me. I think probably the biggest thing for me is, you know, there, there have been certain criticisms, especially around, I think the framing of this movie that they wish that they could have just had it framed as about Fred Hampton and the Panthers. Mm-hmm. And I get that. I really just love the fact that they don't pull punches with Hampton because Hampton was a true revolutionary. He got very close to uniting a lot of different groups around an actual common cause. I think that's probably the thing that I love and also really hate about this movie is how needed it is and how relevant it is and how sad it is. Still, it's almost 50 years later and it's, exactly as relevant as it was then and that's that's the part that's so tragic the different leaders of the panthers had taken sort of different paths in militancy and in talking about things Mm -hmm. but to a person they all talk about fred like he's mythical and they basically you know they all said had fred lived we probably would have had a full-on revolution because they really believed that he could galvanize people that way the fact that he was 20 and 21 when this movie was going on yeah and he had managed to pull all of these groups together we see the young patriots and the young lords in chicago just yeah there's there's a scene there that i'm just like yes because he he understood more than anything and and he says it it's one of my favorite lines from hampton is like we're not going to defeat capitalism with black capitalism we're going to defeat it with socialism yeah it's 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 a great film. It's been one that's been on our list for a little bit. And then with the Oscars around the corner, we're like, we have to see it before they pull it from HBO. I'm sure it will be back anytime soon. Yeah. Or if if whatever the agreements are, it'll it'll move to a different streaming service, whatever. Um, it's it's worth it to see. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Hard movie to watch, but hard, really, really good. Hard, but good and, and very important. All right. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 